Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. Delighted to have you with us. Uh, we've been wrangling with some technical difficulties uh, over the past uh, week or so, a week or two, and uh, we've been doing our best to get that squared away, but uh, hopefully we will, we will be uh, problem-free today. Uh, last time we spoke with Joe Putnam, the radio voice of the State College Spikes, we were talking about uh, minor league baseball. And today we're going to turn our attention to college hockey. It is right around the corner, and I can think of no better guest uh, to have with us than Mike McMahon from themacreport.com. We will introduce Mike in just a moment. Today's podcast is brought to you by Anchor, the number one podcasting app on the market today. With the Anchor app, it's so easy to make a great-sounding podcast, and the best part, the Anchor app is free. The Anchor app contains creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone or computer. Anchor takes care of distributing your podcast as well for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and many more places where podcasts are heard. You can also make money with your podcast with no minimum listenership. Trust me, everything you need to make a great-sounding podcast all in one place is with the Anchor app. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Very, very happy to bring in my next guest on the podcast. He is Mike McMahon from the MacReport.com. Outstanding college hockey reporter, also from Neutral Zone. Uh, Mike, uh, I know we talked last week. We had some difficulty with the audio, but uh, looking forward to uh, talking a little bit today. Thanks for taking some time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, Mike, uh, we have a lot to get to today, and uh, I thought maybe we'd start by just discussing the pandemic a little bit. Uh, It had quite an effect on college hockey, which I'll get to in a moment, but Let's start with you personally and, and how the pandemic affected you and your family. I know your kids are very athletic, but, uh, you know, how did that all uh, take shape for you? Yeah, it was so I think at first it was kind of a welcome break, uh, which sounds a little crazy. But when, when you've got a crazy schedule, I mean, we're between school and work and, uh, you know, our kids got a practice for something somewhere, sometimes both of them, sometimes more than one a day. So. Uh, it's a little nuts, but it, it was good those first couple of weeks. I think, you know, we kind of enjoyed just spending time at home and uh, not having to do much. But then, you know, after after about a week and a half of that, it, it grew old pretty quick. So we were able to kind of get back out and start to be a little normal in July. Baseball started back up and we were going with that for most of the summer, obviously a little uh you know, a little different with, with, with some of the different rule changes and things like that. And, and uh, but, but overall, I mean, it, it was a modified way of, of playing baseball, but if it meant the kids could get out of the house and do something a little normal, I think we all, we all kind of embraced it. Well, Mike, you bring up a great point. You know, uh, obviously there's a lot of, uh, you know, negative things associated with the virus, you know, us being cooped up for a couple of months inside. But I guess if you're looking for a silver lining, it's, you know, it was a fact that, you know, the kids got to be outside a little bit, moved around. And, uh, you know, being obviously being outside is, is a little better than being inside. But I, I guess it was good for them to, to get out, move around and get some exercise and some fresh air. Yeah, and I think it was good just to have a little bit of a break, too. I mean, if you're trying to pull a positive out of it, especially, uh, you know, talk from a youth sports perspective, because that's what my kids are involved in. It's crazy. I mean, it's nonstop. Uh, so many of the sports are year round. Both my kids play hockey and baseball and it's, uh, you know, hockey pretty much goes from August until the end of March or early April. And then, uh, you know, you're right into baseball. My older son plays, uh, travel baseball as well. So they're doing their practices start, you know, the end of October and the season goes all the way through, uh, usually till the beginning of July, but in, in our case this year, it extended through the summer, obviously, because it was late to start, but yeah, it was, it's nonstop. I mean, they enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. They have a blast. That's why we do it. But, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in sometimes a break is not a bad thing. So uh, I, I think, you know, sp- my kids specifically having that break to kind of just be able to do nothing uh, was was welcome for us. And I think in the long run, too, it's welcome for them just to kind of just step away and, and not have to, you know, worry about you know, practicing games. Just kind of just take a deep breath and relax for a little bit. Be a kid. All right, Mike, let's turn our attention our attention now to college hockey. Uh, it's right around the corner, and, you know, we, we touched on the pandemic, but really the effects on college hockey have been sweeping. Uh, in the case of Hockey East, you know, we finished the regular season. Merrimack finished on uh, late February at Boston College, and then uh, the following week we were supposed to have the Hockey East tournament getting underway. 
And all of a sudden, that gets scrapped. And then the rest of the playoffs, the national tournament. So, really, uh, the effects of college hockey, no different than the effects in any other sport. Yeah, exactly. And it was kind of funny. Uh, not well, not funny. It was kind of crazy looking back at, at that time, not really knowing what was going on. I remember there was a it was a Wednesday night uh, when everything happened with the NBA, and they paused their season. And the hockey's playoffs were supposed to start that weekend that that friday i believe so it was kind of a crazy couple of days and not really knowing what was going to happen what people were going to do uh, i think there was word at one point that they were going to play some of the series were going to go on without fans um and then i believe it was the ecac was the first one to cancel i think that had to do with harvard i think harvard shut everything down the ecac i think ended up canceling first hockey east wasn't far behind and it, it wasn't long after that i mean I don't think any of us really knew what was going to be going on, you know, that Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, and then, you know, it was pretty clear by the end of the day, Thursday and into Friday that uh, they were going to have to do something. And obviously looking back on it now, uh, postponing everything or canceling everything was clearly the right move, but it, it was kind of a crazy couple of days. Even myself, not having ever gone through anything like this before, not being alive for none of us really have been alive for anything like this before. Uh, you know, I remember when it when it first happened, those first couple of days, just having internal conversations with people at CHN saying, There's no way that they're gonna that this is gonna cancel the Frozen Four. The Frozen Four is a month away. Like it's right. this isn't gonna be going on in a month. Uh, little did we know, you know, here we're here we are, uh, you know, eight months later and, and it's still very much going on and will be going on for a while. But yeah, having I mean, obviously none of us had gone through any of it before. I, I never thought it would have such the wide widespread effect that it ended up having uh, just because, you know, none of us had really ever experienced it. And from a Hockey East perspective, you know, the way that the league is set up, the bottom three teams do not qualify. Last year was Merrimack, Vermont, and UNH. So from a playoff perspective, any one of those three teams didn't get affected. But, you know, there were four first-round series that were supposed to get underway, and you look down at, at the, those one through eights, and, uh, Mike, there were some really tremendous series that uh, a lot of college hockey fans were deprived of. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. There were, there were going to be some great series. And I think you just look at uh, how close the standings were, you know, last year. BC obviously kind of, kind of ran away with it a little bit. Uh, UMass and, and UMass Lowell were closing the gap at the end of the season. But BC was kind of the wire-to-wire leader in the conference. They may have very well won the tournament. They were so good. But – uh, really, there wasn't much separation, you know, again, from kind of like two through six. UMass, UMass Lowell, Maine, UConn, BU. I mean, they were all within a couple of points of each other. Uh, I think I think UMass Lowell in third and BU in six, I think we're only separated by four points. So three through six, we're only separated, I think that was that's true, by four points. Um, and then even some of the teams that were right below them, Northeastern and Providence, a little bit behind. They were in the, in the lower tier spot, in the, the lower seated spots, but still really, really good teams. I mean, I just look at, at some of the series you would have had. I, I think, you know, a BC Providence, uh, a BC Northeastern series, a BC Providence series, uh, or ga just game, if we ended up with one of those games in the semifinals, uh, you know, UMass, uh, UMass Lowell and BU would have been a great series. Even Maine and UConn would have been a fantastic series. So there was a lot there. Uh, because those teams are so close and I think would have made for some really, really good series. Every year there's a series or a game that seems to go three, four overtimes. And it's that thing that everybody's talking about uh, knowing how close these hockey East teams were last year. I wouldn't have been surprised to see it come from, from one, if not more than one of those hockey East series, because all those teams were just so, so close. And nationally, you know, you got to feel for a team like Cornell, that had a tremendous year. Cornell seemed poised to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament, and then they don't get to play at all. And uh, I think that's really what hurts uh, more than anything. Absolutely. I mean, they had two losses all year. I mean, they going into the conference tournaments, you could absolutely have made a made made the case that they were the favorite to win the national title. Absolutely. And uh, yep. you know, they were a team that was was led by a pretty experienced group, and obviously those you lose those guys, you know, you, they don't come back. So you had an opportunity for them last year and, and Mike Schaefer to, to maybe win a national championship. One of the best teams they've probably ever had. Uh, and they do return some guys, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of guys on that team that, that aren't coming back. And while they, they had a lot of juniors and, and some of those guys certainly will be, they're still going to be very, very good this year. There was just a lot of key players on that team who were seniors, including, 
uh, including Caldas, who was, I think, their top scoring defenseman. Uh, and they didn't score a lot of points. I mean, they weren't a team that just blew teams away. They were a team that just didn't allow a lot of goals. Uh, so right. he, he played a key, key part on defense. I mean, there's there's some key guys there, and then some guys that signed as well, uh, some key guys in our coming back. Well, Mike, now as we move forward, uh, let's talk about how teams are, are kind of dealing with the pandemic. Obviously, it's uncharted waters for everybody, but, uh, you know, how have teams kind of coped with this situation, you know, for example, over the summer? And, and, and what are they doing now to, to kind of get themselves back in the rhythm? I think at first, everybody was doing what the whole world was doing, and they were on Zoom. Uh, I know talking to Coach Bork at Merrimack and a few other coaches around Hockey East, that was the bulk of what people were doing. They were, they were keeping track of their players uh, through Zoom meetings, and uh, strength and conditioning coaches were giving players uh, uh, programs to use over the summer at home, and, and they were having to tailor it to whatever players had available to them because some players had a, a full gym available to them. Some players had, you know, a garage with some, you know, sandbags. Everybody was different. Some people had a fully equipped gym. Some people had absolutely nothing. So the, the strength and conditioning staffs at, at all these schools and at, at Merrimack, I, I know it was Mike Kamal, uh, had to tailor programs for everybody almost individually because you don't know what players have available to them. And, and it was yeah. – the, sp the spring is, is when the guys would typically hit strength and conditioning anyway. Most teams do that. I think you know, some teams will use the ice after their season's over. I think you can use it up through the frozen four. You can still practice. Uh, but not, not, not every team does. I don't even think a lot of teams do. I think for the most part, when the season ends, guys and the teams end up not using their ice anymore. Uh, and they're just focusing on strength and conditioning and rehabbing from injuries and things like that. That was all supposed to take place, even for a team like Merrimack, right around that time because their season had only ended the couple of weeks prior to that. Yep. They didn't play the last week of the regular season. So they had about a, a week and a half buffer. Um, yep. But that, that's when, you know, that at that point is when their team would have been going through all that whole process. In fact, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing from Merrimack standpoint, that first week after the season ended, they probably even took off. A lot of teams do that a week or two after, after your season ends, they give the guys a couple of weeks off or a week off before they go into their spring strength and conditioning. So, a lot, all of that had to be done online uh, and, and just giving guys programs and trusting that they're going to do them and, and not being able to, to kind of monitor their progress and things of that nature. So I, I know that was difficult, but the team seemed to do a pretty good job of uh, making the most of it. And then, you know, the schools now, I mean, it's kind of evolved. The schools that are now on campus are using their ice. They're practicing. We're into October, so they're able to practice now. And I know the teams that are on campus are practicing. Obviously, not every school is back on campus, so not every team is on campus. But uh, Merrimack specifically, they're on campus. They've been practicing. Uh, one of the key things, though, that I think they did kind of miss out on, uh, Merrimack, every program, was most of the programs now bring their, their new freshmen in over the summer. Uh, they'll, they'll take semester uh, summer semester classes and hang around with all the freshmen. A lot of the, the upperclassmen come back and, and – they're working out at the facilities and getting getting to know the new guys. And there is kind of that like that team building phase in the summer when a lot of the returners are there and all the freshmen are there. None of that happened this summer. And that's not exclusive to just Merrimack. It's, it's everywhere around the country. So I think a lot of teams are probably going through that, that phase now. I mean, they went back to school in September. And instead of having been around each other already for a couple of months, you know, you had probably guys that were getting to know each other uh, right when, when they went back into classes. But Again, that's something that everybody's going through. It's a byproduct. It is what it is. Um, but I think for the most part, the teams that are in their on their campuses and in the schools that are open, uh, those teams are, are using their practice ice and trying to get ready for when the season starts. And, and it sounds like that may be, you know, coming up in about a month. Well, that's a perfect segue, Mike. Uh, you know, you're around this Merrimack team quite a bit. Uh, you know, you mentioned that they are on the ice, that they're practicing, they're uh, trying to get as close to uh, on schedule as possible. Uh, do you see right now uh, Merrimack being close to where they need to be relative to uh, other uh, seasons uh, in terms of where we are right now? I think so. Yeah. If nothing else, I think everybody's on a, on a level playing field. You know, nobody's able to practice more than others of the teams that are practicing. Obviously there's some teams that uh, aren't even allowed on their campuses. So they're not practicing. Some of the, the Ivy League schools, for instance, they'll they'll probably be behind if they end up playing at all. 
Uh, but for, from Merrimack's perspective, you know, I think they're, they're probably, and I haven't talked to Coach Bork in a few weeks, but I'd be interested in his opinion on this. I, I would guess that he would say at this point they're pretty close to where they would be at this point in a normal year um, because they really didn't miss much ice. You know, they've got, I think, eight hours of skill development per week they could use in September before hitting full practices in October. Uh, and you, I mean, you obviously seeing those early season games, some of them aren't real pretty and uh, there's still some adjustment going on. So I, I would say, I would guess that if you asked him, he would say they're probably right around where they normally would be at this point in the season. And Mike, you know, uh, in terms of the pandemic also, you know, the Ivy league was the first to shut down. They shut it down early and uh, they, they shut it down until new year's day. So, you know, they, they understood the gravity of the situation and they were very quick to act. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Ivy league schools had a lot to do with that, obviously. Uh, you know, a lot of the Ivy league schools took that, that tactic as well. And uh, we'll see if that happens. I mean, I, the big 10 announced yesterday that they're starting games, I think on the 13th of November, I think hockey East will probably be right around that time as well. Either that week or the week after uh, the ECAC, if they don't have the Ivies, I mean, it, it they could do it, obviously, but half their league or Ivy League schools, uh, it, right. it would be it would be difficult. I think they'd have to really kind of restructure some things there. And uh, one of the things, and I've had some conversations with the people. You know, one of the things I've said is, it, it is, it was the right move. Uh, there's obviously no issue with the the tactic they they took to delay it till January first. But like everything else, you know, at first I, I remember, you know, very the beginning saying, you know, how is this going to last until the Frozen Four in April? This will be over by then. You look at it from the perspective now and say, okay, well, we're in October. What's really going to be different between now and January? <laughs> uh, right. I don't know that it's going to be much better between now and January. So I guess if they, you know, from the Ivy League perspective specifically, if they decided that they weren't going to play in the fall and would reevaluate and maybe play starting January 1st, I hope they play. Uh, obviously, that would mean that the, the situation across the country has improved. Uh, but I don't know that a lot is going to change between now and January 1st. Uh, that would make them say, okay, now we're comfortable having, having a season. Well, you touched on the Big Ten, Mike, and uh, they came out yesterday and announced that, uh, you know, they're going to have a schedule of uh, all conference play, which I think will be similar to other conferences in the country. And uh, Arizona State will play in that uh, league for one year. So uh, I know a lot of people are, are happy to see uh, that, that they have a plan in place and it kind of gives a firm indication that, yeah, college hockey is going to be move, move, moving forward. What are your thoughts on the Big Ten? Yeah, I think it's going to be kind of the model that everybody uses, I think. Uh, hockey still be the same thing. I mean, they haven't announced anything specifically yet, but it'll, it'll be uh, league games only. Uh, 24 games is what I think the Big Ten announced. I think hockey will be right around that, that same number, if not the exact same number. Um, which is what their typical league schedule is 24 games. So I, I think that they'll be right, right around the same thing. And that November 13th start date for the big 10 is uh, what I've heard from a couple of people is being rumored for hockey East as well, uh, either the 13th or the 20th. So right around the same time, I think hockey East will get going. Obviously, you know, we're a little spoiled covering ho hockey school and covering hockey. East. It's hockey East <laughs> is going to have the easiest time of any league in pulling right. this off because you don't need to get on a plane to go anywhere. Uh, there's some, some longer bus rides, and, and they may require a hotel stay or two. Uh, but really, the travel is really, really limited. I mean, if you look at Merrimack's schedule this year, right, if they only do conference games and they stick to the same rotation and conference schedule that they, that they usually do, the only, team, the only time they'll have to stay in a hotel is when they go to Vermont. Right. And, and you can even make some modifications there to – maybe go up there twice for two single games and you don't have to go to a hotel at all. I mean, there's modifications can be made. So hockey East of all the leagues has the easiest time putting something together. Uh, the big 10, there's going to be a lot of flying going on, obviously to get to those road games. Uh, NCHC will be in the same position. So ho hockey East really has the, the easiest path forward. Doesn't mean it's an easy path. <laughs> it's going to be challenging, uh, but I think they've got kind of the easiest path, easiest path, easiest path forward there we go yeah and how about the wcha mike do you have a lot of travel there and you got, yeah uh, alaska schools as well so that's going to be real tough yeah and obviously we know what's happening with anchorage at the end of this year 
you know, one of my concerns, and we, nothing's been announced. The WCHA hasn't said much. Uh, but one of my concerns is, is did they just not even do anything? You know, I, I can't see a lot of those other schools being willing to go to Alaska this year. Uh, right. So the league's already disbanding at the end of the year. Um, you know, could could some of those schools, the, the seven in particular that broke apart and decided, hey, we're going to make the new CC or the old, we're going to revive the CCHA. Um, you know, could those schools say we're not participating? I don't know. Legally, can they say we're not participating in the league, but we'll do an independent schedule? And it just happens to be against those other CCHA schools. I mean, who knows what they'll do? Uh, I don't. Right. I don't know what legally they're going to be allowed to do. But I, I man, I, I don't know that th- those schools are going to just be willing to go and travel to Alaska in the middle of a pandemic. Not that Al- I, mean, I don't know what Alaska's numbers are. I don't know if they're in really bad shape or if they're in really great shape. It's just the extent of that travel. You know, for most of those schools, it's two planes to get there, plus a hotel, plus everything else. Uh, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I, I mean, I hope they make it work, especially for uh, Anchorage, who's going into their, you know, their last year as a program. I, I hope they get it, and I hope they uh, figure out a way to make it work. But it's, um, it certainly seems like it's going to be a challenge. Mike, let's talk about a few topics that are uh, trending in college hockey. One is uh, the new program down at Long Island. Uh, they've got Brett Riley, a uh, very young guy, uh, coming from a long, uh, great lineage of hockey uh, coaches. Uh, they are really hitting the ground running. Uh, how are they come along? How, how are they coming along? And how do you feel that'll work as they jump in this year? Well, they hired the right guy. That that was the first, the, the first and foremost thing. Uh, when they announced this, I think it was in April or May. I'm not gonna lie; I thought they were crazy. Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to see, I, I thought honestly, I thought the announcement was wrong. Uh, when, when they sent out the press release and they said, yeah, we're starting a D1 men's program and it's going to start this year, it's going to start this fall, I said, "This, there's no way. Like, they can't do it. Uh, they don't have a coach. They don't have players. A lot of the schedules at that point are already done. I I, I just don't see how it, it – there's no way. And then reached out to the school and somebody got back and said, nope, no, that's a real announcement. That's what we're doing. And, you know, part of it, I think, honestly, still to this point, I, I think the administration there – didn't and and might still not fully understand what they're going to need to do from a commitment standpoint to make division one hockey work. Uh, they started a right. division one women's program the year before they jumped into a, a league that was from talking to some coaches on the women's side, primarily division two schools. They're not fully funded scholarships. It basically operates as a division two league. And the stories I had heard from sources that were pretty close to the situation was that the budget there and what they were going to try to do there was just mirroring what they did with the women's program. And I said, well, if they try to do that here, it's not going to work. Uh, it's you know, totally different. That being said, they made a fantastic hire in Brett Riley, because I think here you have a younger coach who's had success building a program from scratch. He did it at the D three level. He's got experience as a division one assistant. This is his opportunity to shine. If he makes, right. if he makes it work there with, with limited budget, uh, if he makes it work there and, and making it work, doesn't mean going to the NCAA tournament, making it work just means being respectable. Uh, I think he sets himself up to be the leading candidate for every head coaching vacancy everywhere around the country. I mean, if he makes it work there, he's, he's going to be the, the front of the line on any, anytime there's a head coach opening, kind of like, uh, um, you know, kind of like what, what Nate Lehman was before he was hired and Greg Carvel before he was hired at UMass. Uh, I think that's what, what we'll see happen with Brett Riley. And they've done a really good job. They've targeted some, some good older recruits that they've been able to get. Uh, they've also taken advantage of some of the transfer rules. They've got some pretty good transfer guys coming in. I mean, Long Island is a, is a hotbed of hockey players. There's a ton of players that come from Long Island and come from that area. So if he can find a way to keep those guys at home, uh, and not see them go to Hockey East or ECAC schools, they're going to do okay. They're going to do okay. I, I just, for, for their program's sake, I really I hope that their administration understands what they need to do to be successful and is willing to do what they need to do to be successful. And if, and if they even come halfway towards that goal, uh, it's going to be a pretty, a pretty amazing thing. They hired the right coach, though. If there's one guy that I think can pull it off, it's him. Let's take a look at the opposite end of the spectrum now. You've got a Alabama Huntsville 
that was on the verge of having their program collapse. They did a major fundraising effort. And in a very short amount of time, I think it was less than a week, they raised enough money to allow the program to continue on uh, and play this year. But of course, the bigger question with them is, can they sustain long term? And and so what do you think about Alabama Huntsville? And, you know, is there a legitimate chance they may go forward? I hope so. Uh, you don't want to see anybody lose their program. So I really hope so. The The big concern coming out of that situation is that they need to do that every year. Uh, if you if you look at what was kind of coming out from the, the, I don't know if it was the president or the chancellor, some, somebody in power down there uh, had kind of said a couple of times that, you know, th- this saved them for a year, but there's a pretty significant budget gap that they need to bridge on a year to year basis in order for it to be a long term solution. So I, I hope that they're able to figure out a way forward. Uh, it does seem like there's still some significant challenges in their way uh, for this year specifically. Again, are the WCHA schools going to play them? Uh, are they going to be able to have a season even? Hopefully they, they do. Uh, if they are, they, they lost some several players to transfer after it was announced that the program was, was folding. So they're going to have some gaps on their roster. I mean, there's, there's some significant hurdles there. Hopefully they can figure it out, but I don't know that they're, that they're out of the woods just yet, just yet. And Mike, looking forward to the future also, uh, not this year, but the following year, uh, the state of Minnesota will get another team. Uh, St. Thomas uh, will be joining uh, D1. So again, it's always good to expand and, Minnesota's a great state to add another team. Can't beat it. Uh, yeah, that, they're a funny story. They're almost kicked out of Division Three. Uh, they just they, they won all the time. <laughs> they won out. They won. All, I think they were winning in almost every sport in their conference. They just dominated. Uh, so I think uh, the story I believe is that their Division Three conference was basically like you can't you can't stay here anymore. <laughs> uh, so they they moved their entire athletic department up to D one, and that's going to be. You know, that's an interesting one because, like you said, Minnesota is obviously a, a hotbed, um, number one. But number two, there's also the there's also the, the ability for them to recruit hometown guys that are really, really close to their to, – to, to the major cities. They're, re, they're right next to the, to the Twin Cities. They're, they're there. So, uh, you know, having the ability to, to get those kids that maybe don't get into the University of Minnesota uh, – but want to stay close to Minneapolis, St. Paul, here's an opportunity for those kids to still play division one college hockey uh, in a good league and still be close to the big cities and not have, because so many of those Minnesota schools are, you know, from further up North, like St. Cloud or Bemidji, or, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're spread out all over the state. University of Minnesota is really the only one that's, that's downtown. So here's another one that gets you pretty close to being downtown. If you're a hockey player from Minnesota, and that's where you want to be. Well, I just want to circle back to Alaska for a moment, Mike. Uh, we touched upon the fact that Alaska Anchorage is stepping down. Uh, that kind of makes you wonder, is Fairbanks next? What is the future of hockey in Alaska? I think it's going to be a challenge for Fairbanks without Anchorage. I do. Uh, you know, It's going to be really, really hard uh, because ultimately they were facing the same challenges. Uh, the university as a whole, I know, has had some budget shortfalls that they've got to gap and figure out and also, uh, you know, they're going to find out where they're going to play. The WCHA is not going to be a thing anymore. Uh, the CCHA, which took in St. Thomas as their eighth team, uh, isn't going to be an option for them. It certainly doesn't seem because the WCHA schools that broke off to make the CCHA are basically doing so to get rid of Alaska and Alabama. So uh, that's not going to be an option. I, I don't know where they're going to play. And, and I, don't, I don't see independent hockey as a, a – worthwhile path forward it is if you're arizona state because you're arizona state and you can make it work um right. but for alaska fairbanks it, it'd be really really hard now i even think long island that we talked about which is going to be going into this as a as an independent they want conference affiliation uh, because i think they know that they're going to need it but it's certainly easier for them to operate as an independent in the Northeast with so many Atlantic ECAC and hockey East programs around for them to schedule games. It's going to be really, really hard for Alaska Fairbanks to schedule games as an independent. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm just, I'm happy I had the chance to go out there, you know, with Merrimack, I think it was my third year with the Warriors had a chance to go out there. There was the goal rush tournament out there. So, you know, uh, I'm just happy I had that opportunity 
because uh, it's probably going to be the only time in my life I wind up going to Alaska. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that I, I wasn't able to go. It's yeah, and I always kind of figured, you know, at some point I'll make it out there for for hockey, and I don't know if that's going to be the case now because obviously one one's going to be down, and uh, I, I don't know that Fairbanks will have uh, much survival after that. Hopefully they do, but it's going to be tough. Mike, let's uh, circle on back to Hockey East here. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, Jerry York, uh, head coach at Boston College. Uh, Jerry being uh, inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. Of course, he's a, a member of the uh, the uh, regular Hockey Hall of Fame up in Toronto. But, you know, you look at this guy and what he's done over the course of his career, and it's just astonishing. And what's equally as impressive is the humility that he brings on a nightly basis, uh, the fact that uh, he's just one of the nicest guys that uh, you, you'll ever meet in college hockey. And once again, another uh, acknowledgement for Jerry. And, and I know everybody at Hockey East is really happy to see him get this honor. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we're at the point now, and it, it's been at this point for a while, but uh, you can seriously have a conversation with, is he the best to ever do it as far as college hockey coaching is concerned? And there's a lot of great names. You know, there's a lot of great names at the top of that list, whether it's, you know, Jack Parker or, or Herb Brooks. I mean, there's so many just legendary, legendary coaches that you can talk about uh, as far as, as far as, um, as far as who's the best ever. There's, there's a ton, there's a ton, but Jerry York is at the top of the list as far as wins are concerned. And he's up there by a lot. You know, he's got more wins than Jack Parker, more than Red Berenson, more than Ron Mason. Uh, he's got a lot of the most wins ever. And it's by like, more than 200. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> you, I, I think the conversation of, is he the best to ever do it has been around for a while, just, just by that standard. But uh, the thing that does it for me, you know, aside from just the total number of wins, what I think stands out most is the fact that he's had so much success at so many different schools. You know, it's yeah. real easy to step in and, and build something at one place. Not real easy, but it's, I think it's easier to step in in one place and build something up to the point where it's a juggernaut and it's a machine and it just goes. And that's kind of what he has at BC now. That being said, you know, BC wasn't the powerhouse BC that we know of over the last couple of decades when he first got there. They were good, but they weren't winning national championships every other year. Uh, right. But he, he built that. He built up BC to what it is today. He did the same thing at Clarkson. He did the same thing at Bowling Green. When you have that type of success at three different places, you start to look at it and say, well, what's the commonality there? And, it, and it's the head coach, you know, it's, and all right. the three of those schools are in different circumstances, facing different challenges. And uh, he was able to find a way to have success at all three of them. And not just like, not just a little bit of success, a ton of success at all three, yep. at, at all three of them. So absolutely a worthwhile honor. And I think when you, when you look back, I mean, as, as we look at it right now, I'd have a hard time saying that there's ever been a better guy to coach college hockey than, than Jerry York. I just think there's too much evidence there that he's the best one that's ever done it. We're talking with Mike McMahon from the MacReport.com. Uh, Mike uh, covers Merrimack College Hockey as well as uh, pretty much the entire uh, college hockey beat. And Mike, uh, you know, we are going to be starting next month with college hockey, and uh, I, the adjustments that we're going to have to uh, make are really significant. Uh, the first of which... Uh, being having no fans in the arena. And you think around the uh, buildings in Hockey East, and that's going to be a major, major adjustment. You think of a place like Maine that relies so heavily on those home fans, uh, it's really going to be something to see, quite an adjustment, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, I, I, I don't know. I wonder how the NHL players uh, felt about it, you know, during the playoffs uh, in Edmonton and Toronto, because I know – talking to coaches and talking to players in college hockey. Sometimes when you get those, those nights where you go into a building and uh, you know, I can think of back before Greg Carville, when UMass was not very good, there was a couple of Tuesday night games that Merrimack would have out in Amherst and you'd show up and you're in a 8,000 seat building that has, you know, 1500 people in it and it's, nobody's making noise. And, and the guys kind of say after the game, you know, it's hard. Like there's just, there's no atmosphere. Like it, it's difficult to kind of get yourself going. So I, I do, I wonder yeah. if we're going to see an element of that. I mean, I think, you know, they'll get used to it pretty quickly. Uh, I, we're talking about college kids. I think they're pretty adaptable. I think they'll adapt, but uh, it's going to be different, you know, especially when you go into a place like Maine or uh, Vermont or these places where you, you usually got people just hanging on top of you. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be very different. Even Merrimack. I mean, the, the building is so small that when you, 
when, as we've seen, when you pack it in there, there's a, there's an environment, it's loud. Uh, I don't know that you know, you're not going to see that this year, obviously. So it's going to be, it's going to be different. It's going to take some adjustment. Mike, another interesting uh, thought is the bean pot. Now I've talked to a few people that uh, are playing close to the cottage hockey scene and many of them are of the opinion that, uh, you know, the bean pot will be untouched. Those, uh, those Ivy league schools, uh, which Harvard is a part of, they'll be back playing by then. But, uh, do you feel uh, the bean pot will go on as planned? Uh, how do you think it'll be effective? I think if Harvard's playing, I think it will. Uh, I think they'll they'll figure out a way to do it. Uh, if Harvard's playing, I don't know that it'll necessarily be at the Garden uh, because if there's no fans, there's no need to rent that building. Uh, maybe they do it on campus somewhere. Uh, who knows? Um, really, if there's no fans, all you need is a rink. <laughs> but uh, right. you know, I think you could do some cool things with that. You know, maybe, whether you do it on campus or maybe you figure out a way to do it, you know, somewhere else. It's pretty cool. I don't know. You, <laughs> you know who knows uh you, you could you could something that would look good i think on television and kind of make it a cool uh, thing that you could do for the year where you really don't have fans you could probably figure out something but uh, yeah i think as long as harvard's playing i think they will do a tournament what becomes tricky is if harvard and the ivy league schools decide that they're not playing i don't know how you do it with three uh and i don't really i don't see them i mean there was somebody would brought up i think on, on twitter with me like oh well what if they invite another school in or something I'm like that. Oh, you don't want to do that. I mean, it's the four beam, the bean pot's been the bean pot for so long, even for one year, I, I don't think you mess with it for, you know, just the sake of having a tournament. Uh, if you don't have those four, to me, if you don't have those four schools, you don't have the bean pot. So uh, unless all four schools can play, I don't know that they'll do it. I mean, I, I would almost prefer that they don't, honestly, I, I, as much as I would like yeah. to see it happen. If, if you can't have the four schools that are always in it, <laughs> be in it, uh, then I, I don't know if you want to have one for this year. Maybe you just wait a year. Well, college hockey will have to get uh, creative in terms of the postseason, the uh, conference tournaments, Mike. If everybody's playing a non-league schedule, uh, the pairwise really doesn't come into play. Of course, that's the, uh, that's the method they use to compute uh, who goes to the national tournament. So do you have any ideas how the NCAA might get creative and proceed with the pairwise? <laughs> Absolutely none. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that they have any idea yet either, because yeah. if you're playing, if you're not playing any non-conference games, just throw the pairwise out the window. Uh, the, right. the pairwise needs the non-conference games in order to compare the conferences. That's how it weights which conferences are, are better than others and it goes by non-conference record those non-conference games are really really important so if you don't have it uh if you don't have non-conference games you you really don't even use the pairwise because it doesn't matter uh i i i would prefer they do something merit-based though uh you know because i guess somebody had brought up well you could just use you could use some type of poll and i go well, i don't like that um you know i just i don't think I don't think there's enough people to follow the sport closely enough that you could have a legitimate poll. You know, I think uh, there's polls out there, obviously, and, and that's fine. Uh, but I don't know, you know, how many of those voters are actually watching every game every week? None of them. It's impossible. Nobody is. Uh, so it, it's, I think it's difficult for even even the polls to, to really seed a team for a tournament. Do you want a team getting left out of a national championship tournament because – uh, in the poll is weighted with too many Eastern voters and a Western school that's really good gets left out. Like, no, you, you nobody wants that. So I would prefer if they, if they figure out a way that is something based on results, um, you know, something along the lines of maybe you do the top two teams in each conference, the top three teams in each conference, maybe you figure out a way where, okay, the, the conference uh, I think you could do something even along the lines of each conference gets to send three teams to the tournament. And then you tell the conferences, you figure out how you want to do it. And maybe every conference does it differently. Maybe the conference says, right. okay, well, we'll send our regular season champion, our tournament champion. And, you know, we'll figure out the, the team with the best goal differential or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and you, yep. you can figure out different ways to do it. Maybe you leave it up to the conferences and that way you get some, some type of even distribution, but uh, I'd rather that than someone just picking teams. I, I don't think that would work out well. Well, Mike, uh, let me quickly get your thoughts on the upcoming hockey season. Uh, if you had to divide uh, the league up into the three tiers, the top tier, the middle tier, and the lower tier, uh, what are your quick thoughts about who would be where? Uh, I think it starts with BC. Uh, even though they lose some guys, everybody loses some guys, and they were at the top last year. So 
I don't know that they lose enough to make me think that they're not going to be at the top this year. So I, I would start with BC. I think that's where uh, that's where the league will begin and end. And they they may be on a tier by themselves. Uh, just they they really dominated the league last year. Um, yep. I think their goal differential was almost like a plus fifty, and the next was right around like a plus fifteen or a plus twenty. So that tells you. I mean, they 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 were blowing teams away. After that, I, I think the next tier is a UMass. UMass Lowell, uh, BU Northeastern Providence, they all kind of jumbled together. Again, we said all those teams were all really, really close. I think all those teams will again be really, really close. Uh, UConn has the potential, I think, to, to break into that pack and be in that tier with those teams again. They were last year. Uh, so I think UConn has the potential to kind of stay there in that three to six, three to seven range. Uh, and then, you know, at, at the last tier, I think, is Merrimack, Maine, and New Hampshire. I think they're in a tier by themselves. It'll be competing for one of those last, maybe last one, last two playoff spots. Uh, and then after that, I think Vermont will be, will be at the bottom. I, I, I know Vermont had some changes. They changed their head coach. Uh, there's a lot going on there. They're, they brought, they, they sped up the arrival of some recruits. I think they got a 17 year old kid coming in this year. Uh, but I don't know that there's going to be enough change in year one for Vermont to, to really burst out of the basement you know vermont was in the basement last year by a pretty solid amount i mean they i think merrimack was almost 10 points ahead of them in 10th place merrimack in 10th place was almost 10 points ahead of vermont in 11th so that's that's a huge gap that's a huge huge gap i mean they could be they could be significantly improved and still finish in last place so uh, I, I think vermont will be the team that finishes at the bottom uh, maine merrimack unh maybe UConn competing for those last couple of spots. And then that, that middle pack being pretty huge uh, with BC probably at the top. Well, you know, you mentioned Vermont and uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about the changes that are going to be happening up there. Of course, Kevin Snedden uh, announcing his retirement before the end of last season. And by the way, it's great to see uh, Kevin landing on his feet as we knew he would, but uh, you not only have the coaching change in Vermont, but you have the continued renovations to Gutterson Fieldhouse. So, uh, there's a lot of moving parts going on up in Vermont. Right? Yeah, I'm interested in what, what's going on with those renovations. There was a report out, I think at one point on one of the radio stations up there, that they, with everything going on the, and finances being a little short, obviously, uh, that the that renovation project may be delayed a bit. So uh, I hope it still happens. Uh, I mean, they weren't changing a ton to Gutterson. They were updating it more than completely you know, gutting it and, and redoing it. But that, that's fine. I mean, I think Gutterson Fieldhouse was a great rink. So uh, updates would have been real nice. Um, as far as the team goes, I mean, obviously I, people are raving about Todd Woodcroft. Uh, it sounds like he's a, a well thought of coach and, and a smart guy. Um, the biggest thing is going to be recruiting. I mean, that's, that's so important. Uh, it's really the most important. I mean, you see coaches say it all the time. The team that has the best players get off the bus is typically the team that wins the game. So recruiting is going to be really, really important. Uh, he's done it a little bit at the pro level, but almost all of his experience has been at the pro level. So. Uh, I, I think I think he's a good coach. Uh, I, all indications are that he's an excellent teacher. I, I think, though, they need to figure out the recruiting piece. And I'm not saying he can't do it. It's just that there's no history there that says he's a great recruiter. So uh, that's what they need to figure out. I think they're going to need assistance. They're going to need assistance there that can help in that regard um, because typically the, the assistants are doing most of the groundwork as far as recruiting goes, uh, but the head coach is still the closer. You know, the, 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 the assistant may come in and pitch the first six, seven, eight innings, uh, but to get a kid to commit, you know, he's not committing unless he's talking to the head coach. So uh, the, the head coach needs to still be a, a good recruiter and be able to close those deals. So we'll see. It's just, it's unproven. You know, like, again, it's not that it's going to be negative. It's not that he can't do it. There's just no, uh, real indication that he is a great recruit because he's never had to. He might be an excellent recruiter. We just don't know yet. Uh, so I think it's a, it's not a, it's not a negative. It's just a question mark. Uh, and that's, that's the one thing I think that they gotta, they gotta figure out right now. That's, that's really the, the key piece that I'm looking at with them because all indications are that he's an excellent coach, an excellent teacher. I think he's going to be a really, really good coach for the players that they have there. Uh, but, you know, can they bring in enough good players to, to break through and be competitive on a year to year basis? That's, that's the biggest question. Well, Mike, before I let you go, uh, there was a uh, big loss in the music industry yesterday. Eddie Van Halen passed away. And I'm wondering if you have uh, 
any uh, Van Halen songs that you're partial to? Uh, I'm bummed that I never got to see Van Halen. Um, man, there's so many awesome ones. I don't even know. I like, uh, obviously, obviously, Jump is a classic. Uh, Panama is a classic. I, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably most partial to, uh, I'm probably most partial to Dreams. I think that's a really good song. Anytime I hear that, it kind of gets you going. You know, there's nothing that guitar solo in the middle, man. That 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 does it for me. <laughs> you know, I was I, I have a very funny story. I was, uh, you know, for many years I played keyboards way way back in the day, and this was back in the '80s when uh, Jump first came out. And the keyboard, the guitar center places were having uh, keyboard players come in and play that song continuously. So I went in there one time and and played it and. Uh, the guy said, you're about the 12th person today who's played it, so we got to ask you. <laughs> you, know, you know you're making it as a musician when you get tossed out of the <laughs> Well, you know, that just shows, like, the, the type of impact that it had, though. I mean, every guy that went in there was, was playing the same song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, listen, I, I know that uh, we, we, we tried to do this last week. We wound up having some technical difficulties, and uh, I, I'm 100% confident it's going to be a lot better today. I want to thank you for uh, spending time with us, and uh, we really look forward to seeing you out at the rink. You know, in some capacity, hopefully uh, the broadcasters and media will be allowed in the rinks. But uh, again, it's it's really uh, I'm really grateful that you spent some time, and I know our audience is going to love it. So absolutely, yeah, no, I hope so. Hopefully, we're hopefully we're watching hockey again in about a month. All right. You've been listening to Mike McMahon from the MacReport.com. You can also find his work at Neutral Zone. Is that NeutralZone.com? NeutralZone.net. And we've got a ton going on today with the NHL draft. It's our first first draft that we're covering. We've got scout, a lot of the guys getting picked today. Uh, the scouts over there have been watching since they were 14, 15 years old. So uh, today's, a, today's a big day for us with the, with the NHL draft going on. So there's a ton of coverage over there today. All right, Mike, we'll be sure and check it out. Thanks again for spending some time. Great, thank you. All right, that's Mike McMahon from MacReport.com. We invite you to stay with us. We will have another episode on the podcast next week. You've been listening to Airing It.